0: Hello and welcome to Wavelength by the Bright Eclipse. My name is Mahir Raparel. Today we have with us Teja Sridhar and Ahan Gadkari, two uh, very good friends of mine. And uh, we're going to be discussing something that's actually a country that's been on the mind of a lot of people and people have been cursing for a long time time. uh, uh, This country's name is China. And we're going to be talking about the South China Sea issue, China's expansionist policy and the Chinese debt trap. It may not be a trap, but at the same time, we need to realize that China is probably a bigger money lender than the World Bank at this stage. And with that being said, what according to you is the South China Sea issue, uh, uh, would you like to give us an overview of what it is? Uh, starting with you, Tejas. Uh, sure, so
1: essentially what happens in uh, you know, in terms of there being a certain law, uh, like in this case we have the CLOS and uh, CLCS, um, is that you can define to a certain extent what amount of land is owned by whom. And the, the bigger problem comes in when you have shared borders, uh, you know, because uh, let us assume that in case of India, for example, we have the Indian Ocean uh, to this side and Pakistan and India are really close. Now, in such cases, how does the, the boundary on land project into the sea? That's essentially what the uh, problem with most of the you know, arguments and uh, grey areas in the uh, situation is. Now, in such cases, um, of course, with China, what happens is that since it's a major, major trader in the South China Sea, a lot of countries can claim, and a lot of countries have been laying claim that uh, it is blatantly violating the uh, the UNCLOS, the UNCLCS, with so regards to international waters uh, margins, and uh, a lot of countries, you know, it's it's basically like saying that there are two sides to a point Some might say uh, it's basically it's it's perfectly fine for their right to say that okay this is going through my territory i demand a certain uh, amount of taxation on this but another person might say okay it's just their way of uh, you know sucking on to the kind of uh, profit that china is making it's it's a parasite that you know when i will want to try and uh, make any argument i can to get a little bit of that money myself so right now there is no concrete uh, margin that you can define as to where the legality ends and where the person and political gains begin. But essentially, that is the whole uh, problem here, that there is uh, a border that has been poorly defined projected into the sea. And the sea is very active. The sea is one of the most major trade routes in the uh, region. And that is causing a lot of conflict with regards to how the resources are going to be shared and if the liability of that land also falls within the people or other countries were claiming that water.
0: That makes sense. Uh, Ahan, what's your uh, thinking behind what
2: the South China Sea issue is? Well, since Tejan has given an overview about it, I'll just present certain arguments that are put forth by the international community on the same ground. Firstly, uh, let's look at USA's point of view and what arguments they put forth. Now, their argument goes back all the way to the Suez Canal Crisis and the Constantinople Convention, wherein they talk about how even though a certain country might talk about territorial gains and even if hypothetically we consider it being a part of certain territory, then also there are certain rights and international norms that they have to accede to. For example, why the Swiss Canal crisis comes up is because in the Swiss Canal crisis, Egypt had uh, territorial sovereignty over the Swiss Canal as accepted by UK and France in the Constantinople Convention. But at the same time, they had to respect the right of free passage through the Suez Canal of other countries, which is restricted, which caused the whole situation to erupt. Now again, the whole point being that of course, USA never accepts that uh, the land is sovereign territory, but wants to assert the fact that they can conduct freedom of navigation operations all around. Now there are certain norms in international law that have reached a certain status wherein they become peremptory norms and create an obligation upon states to follow those. And such a norm is a right to passage now this has been reiterated by the international court of justice as well in the corfu channel case and many of its following judgments and what and what the united states and other countries such uh, are trying to do in the region to prevent china's territorial gain is to make sure that they uphold this particular right now looking at china's side of the argument now china comes up and says that they say that they are not violating their they are not violating the unclos because they have not accepted the entire UN CLOS. Now, a country has a right to uh, accept a part of a convention, not the entire convention. And that is exactly what China says. That they have accepted a part of it. And they have accepted the part of it which says that a country can exert their historic rights over a particular uh, area or a land of or a, uh, basically area of water. Now, again, when it comes upon territorial rights, it again becomes a very uh, complex issue. Because in some cases, no other country except China recognizes the 9 dash line. But when we look at history, there have been times wherein countries have gone on to exert territorial uh, territorial province. Like, for example, the United Kingdom and the Falkland Islands issue, when although it was way far away, they had international support, so they managed to get it as a part of their territory. But here, China also is trying to do the same thing as South China Sea, but uh, countries like the United States of America and other and their allies have made multiple uh, have made multiple overtures to stop China from bridges, such as they have created the Quadrilateral Security Agreement to have countries around the region have military exercises in the in the Sea of Japan region to counter South China Sea uh, the militarization of South China Sea to have freedom of navigation operations there, etc. And these are basically the two sides of the argument that are uh, being proposed on both sides.
0: That makes sense. Uh, right now. We, we see a lot of hostility also taking place with respect to the South China Sea issue because recently when the Chinese boats were entering uh, quote-unquote the Philippines territory of the South China Sea, there was a, a, a warning given to uh, the Chinese ships that okay, if you don't pack off now, we might attack or we will attack on so you. So, what do you suggest with respect to hostility in China? The, Chinese government or the Chinese Navy not refraining, what do you think will be the future with respect to this whole issue that has been created in the South China Sea? Tejas, starting off with you.
1: Uh, sure, thank you. Um, in this case, generally what happens is that as people, as as common man, okay, it's something way beyond the reach of all of us to determine what are the levels on which this uh, crisis has evolved. Now, in, in some cases, like if, if you were to take any government for that matter, there's going to be one level, which is the social level of you and me. How does it affect you and me as a common man? Uh, a slightly more evolved perspective would be how does it affect the businesses of my country as a whole? And the absolute highest perspective in this case would be how does it evolve and affect my perception or my opinion towards other countries? Now, in China, one of the biggest uh, you know problems or drawbacks that people have noticed is that um, they have a more of a, a little callous attitude towards, uh, you know, things. They're they are lax, they don't care about compliances, they don't care about regulations, because they are on the perspective that, okay, the moment I start exercising my opinion, and China, sadly, is lucky enough to be, a, 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 you know, in an area where they are surrounded by smaller and less powerful countries who cannot challenge their stand. And because of that, basically, it's that saying, if you are a bully in your classroom, It is natural that tomorrow when you step out and meet another person from a different class, you will try to portray that bully uh, perspective because you are going to be, okay, I need to uh, express my authority. Now, in this case, what happens is that uh, with with the South Asian region, sadly, uh, a large part of all the uh, geographies are smaller in area and smaller in uh, military prowess as compared to China. So any threat pretty much at this point from a military perspective would be mundane and would be moved for the, uh, you know, the government to take seriously. But in case of USA, similarly, again, the USA perceives this to be a challenge to its sense of authority in the world. China has been competing constantly and creating work to try and determine that, you know, I'm the, uh, the, the, big, the big bully in the South Asian region. But USA has been exercising that throughout the world, if you take a look at it. Right, their policies, their behavior, their military uh, protocols, uh, their exercises with NATO, their exercises against Russia, their exercises against, uh, you know, in, in the uh, Afghanistan and Kashmir region, they are all trying to express that, okay, no matter what happens, I am the ultimate power you come to for anything to get resolved. Now, in this case, of course, the, the military threat per se comes from the fact that uh, we are talking about two countries with really big egos, basically keeping their hands on the last piece of, of french fry on a tray. Okay, and uh, it is going to be down to basically who can you know make the biggest bid, but it's not something to be taken seriously. In in this case, um, the military threat, while it is real, is something intangible because the war is not. And war is one of the easiest and the most effective way to throw a government off uh, you know off charts, to get them to forget everything they are doing and get them out of their protocols because. Let's face it. Today, you could be the most peaceful country in the world, happy with all the policies you have. But tomorrow, if someone challenges your government and says, I'm going to wage a war, automatically it's going to create internal unrest. Because people start questioning your government, people start losing faith in your government. And that's uh, basically what, to a certain extent, China is trying to achieve with its neighbors. If you take a look at the CPC, if you take a look at the, uh, you know, the Aksai chain, as well as the current... Uh, occupation that we are facing in Doklam and a lot of other places around the borders, basically what they are trying to say is, okay, I'm going to hit you on your hand, but if you hit me back, I'll show you a convention and I'll say, listen, you are hitting me. And that is the only one who's going to show up in the media. So right now, I feel that more than a, a government or a international perspective, what is required is to understand the psychological perspective of a government, uh, you know, to, to what extent do they value their ecosystem, what is the uh, price tag or the value they put on the heads of their citizens, and are they willing to basically misuse these citizens to achieve military or government super- superiority? That's that's ultimately what it boils down to. And as far as the uh, military threat or the naval threat in South China Sea is concerned, I really don't think it is something more than just a gimmick to try and establish uh, a sense of superiority.
0: Uh, that's a very fair point, uh, Tejas. Coming to you, Ahan. What what is your overview about the same? You know, the Chinese. Uh, violating probably their their territorial agreements or whatever they have with uh, the South Asian uh, regional countries. And, you know, there being some sort of a tiff between
2: the two sides at this point in time. So, what could it lead to at this point in time? Sure, thanks a lot for the question, Mahir. But the question itself presents a great misunderstanding that people have that China is in a way violating agreements that they have agreed to. The thing is, they haven't agreed to anything as such. Whenever they sign a treaty, they, they always have a declaration with it saying that there are parts of it they do not agree to. For example, the UN clause, wherein they have clearly stated there are parts of which they do not agree to. What they are violating here is parts of is norms, customary norms of international law, like the right to passage, etc. wherein their, uh, wherein whenever an American ship is conducting right to freedom of navigation operation in the SCS, there are always Chinese destroyers and submarines heading towards them to immediately stop them and to and creating a more aggression to and. Although this falls completely in line with the realist theory of international relations that when one country decides to arm itself and go next to them, then then China will also, of course, try to defend itself by putting its arms and ships over there. But what it leads to is the escalation of tensions at the end of the day. uh, Because that is uh, as simple as it gets. Tensions get escalated and we get get closer to conflict. Now, uh, looking at China's foreign policy and uh, how it goes across as such, let's look at, for example, uh, India-China relations as well. Now, there is a UN Observer Group uh, mission present in Kashmir. Now, as per the reports, India has never been the one to fire the first bullet. It has always been the Chinese side. Whenever there has been a conflict, all the UN reports always state that the first uh, aggression as such came from the Chinese side. Even uh, the ex-Prime Minister of India, Mr. Atul Bihari Vajpayee, had given a speech in the UNGF stating the exact same thing, that India has never fired the first bullet, and the UN mission. Aggressive policy. This is their policy is so well followed that now it has become an inherent part of their policy, wherein they try to expand nationalist interests, and that has led to uh, more conflicts reaching. But China deals with extremely smartly. They have signed treaties of friendship with almost every country, including India. Now, what these treaties mainly state is that each and every conflict will be dealt with bilaterally. Now, this does not because of this, other countries cannot step in and intercede. Now let us look at what happened uh, in uh, the 1960s when the Soviet Union had come to intercede in the India-China conflict. Now China does not want. Now what had happened was exactly was that the Soviet Union acted as a mediator that created a third-party interference in uh, China's policy. Now China does not want this, which is why they have created. which is why, like the 1993 treaty with India, they have created specific tailored agreements with each country to make sure that each and every negotiation is purely bilateral in nature, so that they can exert their policy. Now, one of the only countries in the current region who has been going against, who has been trying to at least fight a little against this, is India. Which is why there have been many escalations, many rises, and again, all all problems are solved bilaterally. So, this creates a problem for both nations and actually leads to escalation of tensions. And now, talking about the future of warfare as such, the future of warfare won't be kinetic in nature, it'll rather be electronic in nature. Because uh, looking at the current escalations, it will not suit China to have a brigade of troops going into uh, another country's territory. Because that will, in the end, violate all their agreements, violate all the progress they have made till now, and lead to uh, countries like the United States of America getting an excuse to come in and interfere in the region, which is what what China wants to avoid at all costs. So what seems to be a more likely situation is uh, an electronic attack from China rather than uh, any form of kinetic warfare as such
0: that yeah that's 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 a very fair view and thanks for correcting me when uh, i made the mistake by saying that they violating uh, they're violating their uh, agreements. anyway moving on uh china is sort of le- uh, doing a lot of money lending at this point in time they're lending a lot of money to countries like pakistan uh, lending to countries within the african continent and at this point in time they are uh, presumably the biggest money lender in the world bigger than the World Bank as well. So, you know, economists around the world have termed this as the Chinese debt trap. So Tejas, would you like to give an overview of what the Chinese debt trap is?
1: Uh, Sure, so um, ideally what happens in case of a debt trap is, uh, one thing that people tend to misunderstand and have a misnomer about is that uh, money that is being lent is something which is tangible. Right? And uh, this is one of the biggest misconceptions which has led to the evolution of this concept is that uh, when people say that the GDP is being invested into this or you know, there's a, a relief package being released, people visualize that there's somehow a big chest which has cash in it and that is the one being uh, sent out. Um, In this case, what happens is that uh, a lot of money is uh, technically non-existent. If you take a look at the way uh, economy has evolved as such, um, a lot of money that we talk about is only in an intangible form in something which is called as a valuation bond. For example, if I as a country want to tell people that, okay, I have an X, Y, Z amount of uh, manufacturing available with me, it is not that I've actually sold it and, you know, gathered that money to say, okay, this is the exact value of a manufacturing uh, unit, it's not. Right? It's simply a valuation which tells me, okay, if the operating cost of this manufacturing chain is this much, which means that let's say in a year I can manufacture and sell products worth 1.8 million dollars, then a small medium industry can be called as a 1.8 million dollar manufacturing chain. Similarly, a lot of times what happens is when governments outsource, okay, uh, one of the most recent and relatable examples could be that of the Rafael deal. Uh, when governments outsource their uh, manufacturing to another country, uh, the the uh, you could say the consideration involved in this case, the financials involved are majorly, majorly in terms of government bonds, right? Which is basically a simple IOU between government A and government B and whatever little industrial uh, exchange has to be made in terms of money that is made in as it is in terms of uh, soft money. But in this case, especially with regards to China, what happens is um, a larger part of the Chinese uh, business uh, guild or the Chinese business conglomerate uh, operates very closely in favor of the government. Meaning, if I as a government, let's say tomorrow I can go to a country and say that, okay, I can manufacture this thing that you want very at a very cheap cost, right? It's going to cost you almost nothing and you get a really good quality. One might think it's, it's foolish because, you know, if you're giving someone something that good you are, and you're not charging money, they would say, you know, you're really bad at business. But the thing is if you can't pay back, he owns you. Basically, and that is one of the biggest problems with China right now is that uh, in the the competition to actually out to, let's say, German engineering uh, units, the Japanese engineering units, and uh, more recently the automobile sectors of Southeast Asia as a whole, uh, China has been able to make really good use of its human capital. The largest population that was known to man for a long time is currently making that population an asset. In India, for example, uh, you you do know that there are certain parts of the population who are not uh, skilled enough to work on something, right? But China has made it a point where no matter what the total strength of the population is, I need to make sure all of them are able to give the government something, uh, you know, worth something. So if I'm protecting you with social security, you give me back by either working in a manufacturing unit or working in a, you know, phone assembly plant or something of that sort. Now, a country that has almost, let's say, uh, a population of over 1 billion people, Okay, having so many manufacturing units that the government has permitted people to establish manufacturing units and, you know, getting something called as a value bubble. Now, in in value bubble, what basically happens is that I I create a small globe, you know, the snow globes, right? I'm basically creating an entire world inside a snow globe. And if you need access to it, you're going to have to need exclusive ways for me to let you inside the globe. But once you are inside the globe, let's say, for example, the US comes up with a a particular concept and says, okay, I need these, uh, you know, types of uh, handsets manufactured, Apple, IBM, Dell, uh, Microsoft, Microsoft, still a little less, but all major companies want their products to cost as less as possible so that the profit margin increases. And one of the biggest, biggest coincidences here is that China is okay to do that because they know that US is only willing to increase its profit and capitalize and nothing else. Right. Uh, A value or an ethic towards manufacturers never came from the side of the U.S. which added fuel to the fire. Now, U.S. was someone who figured, okay, I can minimize the cost, I can increase the profit and keep my saving at a larger percent, so why not do it? The problem was that China said, okay, listen, I will do this, I don't mind doing this, but you need to pay me in some way that I know there's an assurance that tomorrow, even if your industries do not work. And this concept actually came up during the World War because... Uh, overnight, all the industries in the U.S. had to transfer their liquid, liquid had to liquidate and put into manufacturing of ammunitions and guns, if you are aware of it, right? In in the 1940s, suddenly, overnight, you had Boeing, you had, uh, you know, Lockheed and all of those people investing heavily into ammunition. And that is basically the business that U.S. deals with. Now, in case like this, tomorrow, if you know that your economy is so volatile, uh, obviously, nobody will come to you and give you credit. For example, if I know that you're going to be someone who's 90% going to default, why would I come and loan you money or why would I do a favor for you on the pretext or the premonition that you will pay me later, right? So what China simply does, is says, okay, I'll do this for you, but you need to sign a bond saying that tomorrow, if you can't pay, I still owe the, you still owe me this much of money and I can take it in, no, in, in any which way as I deem necessary, right? The same, and we are just talking about the US, which can still regulate itself to a large extent, but we are talking about also smaller countries like Pakistan, where they uh, invested into the metro, and with the kind of crippling an economy that they had that particular year, they were not in a fiscal position to actually monetize much of the metro itself. Uh, they have done the same with a couple of coasts and uh, harbors all across uh, you know, the south of Asia and uh, African regions. Now here, um, problem comes in that China wisely is able to uh, increase its territory, so to say, uh, by saying, okay, that you know a certain percent. let's say my current population is over 1 billion, to 60, right? I allow other people to increase that uh, infrastructure on on my money, so that tomorrow if they can't pay me, I absorb that and make it a 1 is to 1 ratio with my population right now. So uh, something as simple as that. For example, uh, we all know very well that China is one of the leaders in first copy electronics, no matter which brand you choose. Right? The simple reason being there are some safety protocols and standards established by the US that if there's a minor defect, you can't pass it in the assembly line And, you know, there are certain things which are left out. But those defects, as per the Chinese uh, guidelines, are technically not harmful. The FDA, uh, you know, you have the FDA, you have the regulation of uh, standards of weapons. All of those are strong over there, but relatively lax in China. So a country like India, where, you know, people are not willing to pay much. uh, I mean, we we do know that, right? If I tell you that you need to buy a particular gun, and I will not take any scam names here, but we all know this has happened, that... uh, Okay, if I can get the same one at a lesser cost, I will go for that. Who cares about the safety, right? Because the opportunity cost of investing in an insurance of that product is almost balancing it out. So what happens in such cases is the poorer countries in Asia and Africa, they invest uh, lesser money to get the same product at a lesser quality and a a little, uh, you could say, higher quantity per unit from China. And that is exactly where the problem comes in, because now uh, China uses strategy A, which is uh, using government bonds and manufacturing bonds with bigger countries, and it uses something called economic dumping with countries like India, right? Release dirt cheap smartphones, release dirt cheap plastic toys, release apps that are substituting some of the major corporations all over the world in India, so that once people are used to it, today if you go and tell someone to buy a phone, of course they will not offer an Apple or a Samsung, because they know that they have cheaper alternatives available, and that's thanks to China. That's thanks to the fact that we had an open market, which was one of the biggest blunders we could have made. And today, when uh, we have banned that, or we have to some extent regulated that, it puts a strain on the consumer market. And I, as a country, overnight have already become a little underdeveloped than I was before because now, kind uh, of electrical, uh, electronic and uh, telecommunication prowess that I used to have before. The same happened with Huawei in the US, the same happened with uh, TikTok initially in India, and a lot more cases. So this essentially becomes a way for China to assure that, okay, I will not charge money for you because let's face it, they have a a huge natural and human capital available to them. They really don't need to make much investment internally. Right? All they need is just to use it wisely, which they are doing brilliantly. With the one child policy, with the policy of creating manufacturing chains and making sure there's minimum wage. And that is being used to capitalize in other countries because they know the biggest problems that democracies is they will buy something cheap if they can save money on it. And and that's that's the way of you know going a communism against a democracy overnight because you know communism wins when it comes to making money.
0: That that's very true. That that was actually a very, very good uh, understanding and very brief understanding of how china is actually utilizing its uh, you know parts where they're being very overpopulated and it's just it's just trying to be as optimistic as possible in the worst of scenarios from time to time but, uh, yeah, okay. Uh, Ahan, what is your overview about, or what is your thinking about the same? Uh, what well, is first, they actually
2: uh, agree to and point by they just an add-on to it. Now, and they just spoke about how China is perfectly using its human resource. Their, their uh, allocation of resources and human, use of human resources is actually brilliant. Now, each kid in China is taught Python. It's compulsory for each and every one of them. All of them know how to code. Now, just look at it this way. How many kids in our country know how to code? Very few. That is because it is not compulsory as such. Now, when in a country, each and every kid knows how to code, there is a particular job that they can already do, that is work uh, as a coder. They and, and if not that, then these people are put in manufacturing plants. So look at it this way. In China, even the person who is putting a phone together knows how to use code and can hack into your system. That is the way they are developing human resources. Now, coming as to the aspect of a debt trap, uh, we need to first understand that there's a two-pronged approach that China uses. And that the China is mainly different from a particular bank. Now, in a normal scenario, if there was a bank, they would lend to people who can't pay them back. Eventually, they would go bankrupt because they would get no funds back. But that is not the case with China. Because as they just rightly said, it is not a chest of money that is going they're investing in certain uh, infrastructure, in certain opportunities, of their, in certain companies. And out of that, they're getting a huge return. Now, how are they getting huge return? Now, China is one of the largest producers of steel. But over the course of time, the demand of steel has gone down. Now, how are they going to get this out without dumping? Now, if China had to dump all of its steel, it would go into huge loss, which it, of course, does not want to do. So in the end, China creates a situation wherein a country owes it a lot of money. And basically, what China tells it is that, you can take, you have to buy our steel at our rates and I'm sorry. Uh, sorry, uh, just uh, had to sneeze. Uh, so basically China says that uh, you have to buy our steel at our rates and they can't say no because anyway they are already in debt. Now this leads to a cycle scenario where the country ends up falling even more in debt and has to buy even more of Chinese product. And this in the end leads to a technical a dependency on a country like china and this is although not that greatly seen in asia is even more prominent in africa where countries are extremely dependent on china for them now a previous now uh now this is more of a futuristic uh, standpoint on how it is a modern form of colonialism in the past britain used to go and have colonies Using troops present there, firstly capturing the kings, getting influence over them, having economic ties, and that is exactly what's happening right now. Uh, China is creating economic ties and creating economic dependency of other countries over it. Soon, if they, and soon, if uh, if China says that uh, uh, they ask a the country to have a status of force agreement, wherein they can place their troops on their land in order to protect the resources, the country will have to agree because they're already so much in debt that they just cannot, that they just cannot refuse there is no bailout package for them. Now, this leads to a even greater issue that when China ends up getting such a global stake, it is done in a subtle manner that other countries cannot respond. Now, when the USA and Russia fight their proxy wars as such and fight for a global stake, there's, there's, all, there's always some way that other countries respond. These issues are taken up in the UNSC and they're discussed over there. Now, the same cannot be done with China, with China, which has smartly utilized such tactics the international community cannot in fact take any action on it because these are bilateral agreements which are to be termed and dealt with bilaterally and without any involvement from other nations. This makes it such that other nations cannot involve themselves in it and gives China sort of autonomy over the matters. And now in a bilateral relation where China is clearly the more powerful country, it is obvious rules are going to be bent in their favor. And this is mainly the concept of how the debt trap in in the end ends up creating a situation as such wherein China becomes a major profiteer. Now, looking at China's One Belt, One Road initiative, why do you think countries are even agreeing to it or giving it traction? It is because there are certain nations who are so dependent on China that they have to promote it, that they have to agree to it. And that is a way for them to in a way leviate their debt. Now, what China tells these countries is, you give us rights to let our road pass through, and we will and we will uh, build it through your country at a low rate and increase the trade in your country. Now the country thinks that all right, they're doing this for us, and this is a way for us to try to in a way alleviate our debt. But what they don't realize is, at the same time, China, China makes them fall deeper in debt. Because at the end of the day, they might say that the, you can pay, the, pay us for the materials later, after your trade increases, but they have to pay for it someday. And the interest is just rising on that. Well, that is my view on the debt trap situation and how countries are just falling into the domino, uh, domino of China debt trap.
0: That That is genuinely, I mean, phenomenal as to what your understanding is based on this. Alright, so uh, right now we've after, especially during these lockdowns, we've noticed that quite a few companies have wanted to sort of exit from China, move their manufacturing bases to probably uh, other countries or go back to where they're from. So, how do you think this is monetarily going to affect China, or in probably any other way? How do you think this is going to affect China at all? Uh, Teja, starting with you.
1: Sure. Thank you. Um, so, I, I even uh, you know have spoken a couple of times before also on this that um, the idea of uh, let's say a country saying that we need to boycott China or you know move out of China is something very symbolic. And it is only symbolic. It is not in any way affecting China. It is not in any way improving your country's stakes because uh, let's be honest, in a country like India, okay, in, in this context, let me just take in India because we know we are a developing nation and we know how far we are inside the quicksand. Now, in a case like this, when I come up tomorrow and say that, okay, I'm going to ban certain apps, I'm going to ban certain uh, handsets and devices from my country, it puts a little uh, void in your uh, you know demand and supply curve because now you know that because of eliminating these factors, Okay, like you you may know that there's a a case with Instagram Reels, right? The moment uh, TikTok as an app was removed, there was a sudden void that was created where, you know, people had been so accustomed to this app that they needed a substitution right away, right? Now, in such a case, in in a country like India, where uh, I think partly it is also the people to blame because if I as a person can, you know, be one of the biggest and the brightest minds of my country, if I can uh, graduate out of the IITs, IIMs of the country and, uh, you know, let's say basically have everything I need to run a country with the ethics, with the money, with the capital, everything. There are very few people actually like the Tatars of the uh, Tatars and the gothage of the country because in cases like this, people need to identify and put ethics over money, right? Now, in case of the uh, lockdown situation that happened with India, a lot of times what will happen is, um, in an ideal situation, a, a manufacturer or a businessman in your country must stand up and say, okay, it's, it's in the interest of my country, I am okay with you know, filling up this demand void for a while, right? Creating a supply till everything normalizes. And then we can figure out how to gradually move forward with this. But in case of India, what happens is we have a very predatory market. The moment there's a void, we know there are three, four prominent businesses and, you know, a couple of conglomerates and groups are going to try to eye that and bridge that gap right now with that. And the fact that half of our talent resources in in the field of technology, in the field of uh, manufacturing are outsourced, right? I think it is safe to assume, and you would agree with me, that some of the best minds of India are currently sitting in the US, sitting in uh, the UK, Canada, most of the European countries, right? Because you're not able to incentivize their uh, livelihood and their intelligence in India. And that's one of the bigger problems that we face because a country like China, who knows how to strategically place its human capital, goes easily against India because India cannot actually subs- you know uh, support that human capital. We do not have a maximum number of children that a person can have. We do not know half the people who are currently living in India because they are undocumented. You know, a slum house may have 16, 17 people living in it and we don't even know who they are. They are not even documented. Right? We have people coming in from all sides as refugees who don't have any documents. We don't know who they are. Right? There are people who are not revealing their real income for that matter. For example, the entire income of a racket that works on drugs or works on the, uh, you know, sickness with selling Chinese toys or selling uh, anything or begging for that matter goes unaccounted and unaudited. The taxi drivers that we have in India unaudited. The taxi, the the conglomerates like uh, you know the super, super stores and supermarkets that are on small scale unaudited. Now in such cases, if the government of India itself doesn't know how much is how much of revenue is being created and how much has to be audited, right? And we are talking about the fact that only one percent of India pays taxes. We seriously need to ask some major questions now, right? For, for this case, again, if I say that I will stop using Chinese products, you don't realize that because of the fact that at every level of a business, people wanted the cheap and the cheapest and the best option, they have gone for China in every case. For example, uh, one thing that you can notice right away is you go to any product on Amazon, you go to the customer questions there and they will ask you, uh, there will always be one question that says, is it made in India? Somebody will say, no, it's made in China, don't buy it. Perfectly understandable. Great. But the problem is that at some point it and the employee cost to take care of that in India, it is costing me money just sitting in the territory or in the sovereign territory of India, right? Added to that, Amazon may say, okay, you want to buy an Indian product, good for you, brilliant, okay? The paper on which the invoice is built, something as simple as that, the paper on which the invoice is printed is created by China, a logistics company like Delivery or a logistics company like, uh, you know, uh, FedEx or UPS for that matter. Uh, when you transport a particular package, which is being, you know, sent by a small small business to a person who needs to be, uh, who needs it delivered, the plastic in which it comes is made in China because that was one of their business models to leverage and streamline the supply chain of these people, right? Uh, fuel tankers made in China. The the silos in which you have uh, petrol and fuel being stored in airports and ports also made in China. So even though you actually talk about superficially removing some things, you don't actually realize entirely that even if we go on and let's say tomorrow we come up with the idea that everything made in China should be shut, we will go back at least 45 years in development because we do not have the footprint uh, you know, big enough to support this level of uh, weight on our own. And this is where I think it comes down to the ethics of businesses in India or the ethics of a business anywhere for that matter, to realize that, okay, if you want to boycott China, if you want to, you know, uh, uh, bring the manufacturing units back to your country, great. But understand how much you are paying for it and whether that money is invested or wasted. Because in India, that definition is perfectly wasted. Right? You go to any of the top careers in India, you go to any of the startups, they will tell you, okay, I'm going to start XYZ company. This is my option. This is my sourcing. It's going to be from China. XYZ. I save money. I get an investment. I pocket the money. I sell the startup and I relax. Right? No business in India is run with the intention of becoming a bigger name or becoming something which becomes a need for a customer. It's always a money making business. And that is one of the biggest problems even with USA, even with India, even with major countries who are going to try to uh, allegedly boycott China, is that when a, a landscape of business in your country doesn't start moving from the money-minded perspective to a ethics or a culture-valued perspective, it is going to be almost impossible to separate that uh, distinction between something that is in-house, made in India, actually vocal for local, versus something which is essentially uh, on a very subtle level, somebody taking something away from you. That's just
0: that opinion. makes that makes complete sense. All right, uh, An, what is your opinion about the same? And try to keep it short and brief over here.
2: Sure, sure, Mahir. So, uh, basically, uh, when you talk about the cultural and mind perspective difference, that is a huge difference. That is especially seen in China because of the culture they in fact inculcate within their very kids itself, within what they're taught. Now, uh, I had been in conversation with uh, India's ambassador to the UN previously. And what he had told me was that when he met uh, one of the Chinese diplomats at the uh, UN headquarters, uh, the Chinese diplomat told them that intercontinental China is the best. And then they asked him to show certain pictures of it. And the pictures were horrible, like furniture was broken, the cockroaches everywhere. And then they asked him, that, how is this still the best? This, this clearly has broken furniture, pests. But he said, no, this is the best intercontinental in the world. So that is the culture and the ethical value they have inculcated in them throughout which in fact creates a huge difference. And now coming more upon how uh, these uh, economies function and how it uh, in a way affects China uh, is that it won't affect them much. Because again, these companies moving is more of a political move and not something for a, for an economic profit as such. When Now let's, let's look at the current uh, executive order or an act as such passed by Donald Trump uh, known as the Taipei Act. Wherein they wanted to move uh, greater shares or greater ease of business for companies moving from China to uh, Taiwan. Although technically China calls it a part of it, but of course it has a separate control over its own economy. And the companies moving there will contribute to that economy, not the PRC's economy. Also companies moving down to Vietnam now. It is because uh, they are getting uh, a lower cost as such, but in a very limited range it is because uh, of uh, specific American policies in relation to these countries. If you look at it from an individual perspective, then China still provides the best uh, alternative as such for a person to go and manufacture in that country. And now talking about uh, basic businesses itself, the thing is, uh, businesses uh, now when you look at the ease of doing business in India, how easy is it to start a business? It It is clearly not. It is an unspoken truth that for getting a basic license itself, there are many hurdles one has to go through. There are many bribes one has to pay, which clearly go against the ethics of many American and European corporations. Now when India comes up and says, make in India, come to India, they have to at the same time make it easier to do business in India. Because a country will only come here if they find it that yes, this provides a better opportunity for us. And that is what, uh, that is just what I will conclude with, that the very fact and the only way that India can in fact counter China in its economical prowess as such is if we take care of the corruption in our country, if we take care of the government uh, policies, and if we provide an environment which is suitable for these businesses to come in, and that is the only way that we can create an alternative to China, which is a very unrealistic solution because of the deep rooted uh, politics in India and the great uh, village supervision and how the things as such run very differently over there and the very status of people over there but that is the only way we can, we can move ahead is with strict enforcement. Although hard, it is not impossible and if we end up doing it, it will surely help us to match China and its economic progress.
0: That, that was a gen- genuinely great uh, point of view from you Ahan. Uh, Alright, uh, let's conclude with our discussion for today. This was a great discussion that we've had on what China is doing with respect to South China. See there debt trap and you know the manufacturing basis and how it's going to affect them as a whole uh thank you very much for being with us here on wavelength and have a great day